We come together on Good Friday knowing that this evening commemorates Jesus' death on the cross. And according to the Gospels, Jesus was put to death on the Friday before Easter Day. And since the time of the early church, Good Friday has been observed in many different ways, sometimes by fasting, sometimes by seeking forgiveness, sometimes by making restitution. All of those things are part of our tradition. In many other traditions, the celebration of Holy Communion um, is also suspended. The service involves primarily the focus on the cross as well as uh, passages of Scripture, especially the Passion stories from one of the Gospels. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to focus on the message of the cross. And I invite you to uh, join with me in a call to worship that's printed, and it is responsive. On the night before his death, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, those who stepped from the shadows to take him by force asked if he was the Christ. And he answered, I am. I am the one you seek. Jesus is the one who said, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who searches for the lost. I am the one who brings back the stray, binds up the wounds of the cripple, strengthens the weak, and deals justly. Jesus is the one who said, I am, to the lonely, the sinner, the seeker, and the desperate. I am, to the grieving, the needy, the broken, and the forsaken. I am, to the shame, the hurting, the discouraged, the fearful, and the abandoned. Jesus is all of that to all of us and more. Jesus is the Son of the living God. Everything we need is found in him. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we dare to enter your presence this night, we remember what a turbulent, soul-shocking day that Friday was for you. And yet we call it good because you turned that dark event into a day of victory. Your death was the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. You paid the penalty in full so that we could have life. And then you raised Christ from the dead and you made him the source of our salvation. Tonight we're here to give you praise and to humbly offer you the worship of our hearts. Amen. I bring greetings to you from the congregation of DeWitt Christian Church. We are so glad to be here. Years ago when we began this tradition of sharing in the Good Friday service, our hope was that it would be a beginning, not an end. It's led to a partnership through which we at DCC have been uniquely blessed. You have shared your leadership, your resources, your time, your ministry with us. And you've allowed God to use you to make a difference in the community of DeWitt, but also in a unique way in our fellowship. And we are extremely grateful. Our hope going forward is to continue to find ways that we might partner with you to help multiply your ministry as well. Thank you for your generosity that's been evidenced in so many ways. And uh, our wish for you within this uh, Christian community would be that may God continue to multiply the impact of your ministry and may you know his favor 
as you serve him. In Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 1, Scripture reads this way. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Still have that marked in Luke 23. We'll pick up with verse 13. And the narrative reads this way. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent, me, uh, sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for. 
and surrendered Jesus to their will. Well, you've heard the story. Tonight's message is like uh, the prequel to the story. In our congregation, we've been doing a series through the Lenten season called Beyond Failure, finding ourselves in Peter's story and looking at many of the stories centered around um, the last week or so of Jesus' life and w- that involved the Apostle Peter. And many of you already know that Peter was this impetuous uh, man, one who was always there to, to react quickly, to listen slowly, uh, but yet Peter becomes the leader of this group of disciples. And tonight we're going to see how Peter's actions once again lead um, to the whole story that you just heard Mark share with us from Luke's Gospel. It was around midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had been praying alone. In the distance, his disciples can see the flickering lights as a group of soldiers cross the Kidron Valley. They are led by Judas. It all happens so quickly, a brief conversation, a hurried kiss on the cheek. And the soldiers step forward to take Jesus away, and in the confusion and the semi-darkness, Peter knows that he has to act. He has to do something to protect his master. So listen how Luke describes it. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Grabbing his sword, Peter takes a wild swing, aiming at no one in particular. The sword finds its mark, but not as Peter intended. If if he hoped to scare off the soldiers, it didn't work. If he hoped to inspire the other disciples, that might have worked had not Jesus stepped in. Peter lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. No doubt the servant fell to the ground, began screaming in pain. Blood must have been spurting from that hole where his ear had been. The soldiers would have drawn their sword and been ready to kill Peter. But before things got out of hand, Jesus touched the servant's ear, healing it instantly. And just like that, the crisis was over. Now, it must have made an impression on the disciples because this little incident is recorded in all four Gospels. Only John tells us that it was Peter who swung the sword and that Malchus was the servant's name. Only Luke tells us that Jesus healed his ear. And when we think about what happened that night, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus get all the attention. But the disciples never forgot what happened to Malchus. If it seemed that important to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and if the early church never forgot this story, then no doubt it contains some important lessons for us. We can frame the question this way. How does a Christ follower react when all is lost or seems lost? What do we do when our dreams seem to disappear in the darkness? This little story offers several important answers. First, when all seems lost, we react rightly by refusing to give in to impulsive anger. 
We can easily understand Peter's desire to fight back. In the confusion of this late-night arrest, he saw his master being threatened, and he decided to fight back, and who can blame him? So grabbing a sword, and we know from Luke twenty-two thirty-eight that the disciples had two swords with them, he takes a wild swing and he cuts off Malchus's ear. No doubt he probably meant to behead him, but the angle wasn't right. And I'm sure Malchus didn't stand still either, so he lopped off his right ear. And in his fear and anger and desperation, Peter has lashed out at the nearest target, the high priest servant. And he wounds him, but not kills him. Everything about this story makes perfect sense. You can hardly blame the disciples for thinking, hey, it's time to fight. And of course, we would expect no less from Peter, the volatile, emotional leader who generally first acted and then thought about it later. This whole scene reminds me of a chapter from a business bestseller that talks about a bias for action. And the chapter begins with a subheading that Peter would have appreciated. It's called Ready, Fire, and Then Aim which is exactly what happened that night in the garden. And it is at this point that we recall the words of the Apostle James, writing many years later. James said, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Slow to anger. How many of us are good at that? I'm sure there is a slice of humanity that can honestly say, I'm a person who's slow to anger. But for the rest of us, here is a message from our Lord. Your anger and God's righteousness generally move in opposite directions. Years ago, a Christian counselor on the radio made an unforgettable remark. He said, when you find yourself getting angry, ask yourself this question. What am I afraid of? Because most of our anger stems from fear, and most of our fear comes from the perception that we're losing control. Stop and think about that for a moment. As long as we are in the driver's seat and things are going our way, we rarely get angry. But let things begin to spin out of control, our control, as they did that night when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and fear begins to take over. It's only a short step from fear to impulsive anger, and from sudden anger comes all manner of evil. Second, when, we, when all seems lost, we react rightly by choosing to lose rather than winning through brute force. See, losing is not a popular idea today. It's definitely not a very American concept. As George Patton famously remarked, Americans love a winner. America will not tolerate a loser. We all want to be on the winning team, don't we? That's why millions of Americans filled out their March Madness brackets. We want to be able to say, my team won it all. Nothing seems more un-American than choosing to lose. But that's precisely what the followers of Jesus are sometimes called to do. Remember, in God's kingdom, the values of this world are turned upside down. Jesus said those that try to save their life must first lose it. Take up your cross 
and follow me. What will it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their own soul? Those who would be first among you must first be servant of all. Whoever loves their life must lose it, and whoever loses their life saves it. Upside down. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, we have to lose in order to win. That's what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Brute force does not advance God's kingdom. We cannot accomplish God's work by bullying other people into submission. When we try that approach, it may produce short-term results, but it always backfires in the end. Because the appeal to brute force means that we don't really believe in God. And if we did, we wouldn't try to take matters into our own hands. Jesus said, don't you realize that I could ask the Father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. One translation talks about 12 legions of angels, which would be about 72,000 angels. Now, do you think 72,000 angels could have handled the soldiers that came out to arrest Jesus that night in the garden? But if Jesus had that sort of power at his disposal, we may be asking, why didn't he use it? Verse 54 says that Jesus refrained from calling on those angels because he knew that his arrest was necessary in order to fulfill God's plan. It's got to happen this way, Jesus said. And I don't blame Peter for not fully understanding those words. It's after midnight. It's been a long few days. He's tired. He's distraught. He's confused. He's angry. He's worn out. He's upset. And in his despair, he wants to do something. He wants to do anything that will rescue Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need his help. He doesn't want to be rescued. Jesus can take care of himself. What seems to be cluttered uh, what seems to be the cluttered rush of events turns out to be the plan of God unfolding to bring salvation to the world. And when evil seems to be winning, Jesus calmly submits, knowing that in the end, God's will must be done. One author puts it in perspective. He says, Jesus did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a hair on his head if he had not given permission. Sometimes we must learn to lose with God, and in the losing of our power and our significance and our place in the lights and our fame and our fortune and all that we hold dear, especially our reputation in the world, in giving all of that up, our losing with God wins for us a blessing that the world can't match. And the world doesn't understand. Now third, when all seems lost, we react rightly by relying completely on Jesus' supreme power rather than on our own puny strength. Sometimes we just have to let go. How hard is that for most of us? Letting go doesn't exact mean, exactly mean giving up. It doesn't mean passively sitting by while the world takes advantage of us. Letting go means giving up the right to always be in control. Letting go means admitting that we aren't calling the shots. Letting go means we choose not to manipulate others. Letting go means admitting that we don't have all the answers. Letting go means yielding our frantic emotions to the Lord. Letting go means resigning our position 
as boss of the universe. Could God have made things turn out differently for Jesus? The answer is yes. He's God. He could have arranged the circumstances any way he chose, but God ordained that his son would die. Isaiah 53.10, but it was the Lord's plan, good plan, to crush him and cause him grief. Jesus had to die. Ponder that statement for a moment, and you will know why Jesus didn't fight back. He knew that without his death, the whole world would be lost. So to serve God's greater good, he endured the indignity of the howling mob, the false accusations, the brutal beatings, and the shame of death on a cross. You see, Good Friday always comes before Easter Sunday. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. And there are no shortcuts on the road to glory. Peter's wild attack, motivated no doubt by desperate love, meant that he still didn't understand that Jesus had to die. And that's why he relied on his sword to protect the Son of God. When Thomas Whitlow uh, wrote about this story, he used six words, starting with you, to explain Peter's folly. And he talks about Peter's use of force as, first, unavailing. What the church can do in the way of force is very little against the world's military might. Peter's sword was nothing against the armies of Caesar. Secondly, it was unnecessary. If Jesus could command 72,000 angels and all of heaven besides that, he didn't need Peter's puny sword to protect him. Third, it was unchristian. In attacking the servant of the high priest, Peter contradicted Jesus' own teaching to turn the other cheek when we're attacked. Fourth, it was unreasonable. If Peter, even if Peter had prevented the arrest, it would have accomplished nothing of any value. Our goal is to convert our opponents through love, not to coerce them through force. Five, it was unwise. Peter's vain attempt to protect Jesus would have hindered God's purpose to bring salvation through the death of his son. And number six, it was unsafe. Peter's sudden action called attention to himself and made it easier for him to be identified later in Caiaphas' courtyard. His attempted rescue boomeranged and only hurt himself. And then fourth, when all seems lost, we react rightly by extending God's healing love to those who have hurt us. After Jesus rebukes Peter for attacking the servant, he performs an unexpected miracle. He restores the ear. He touched the man's ear and healed him. This is, an, this is unexpected because Jesus healed a man that had joined the group to come out to arrest him. Now, it must have happened kind of quickly. Peter attacks, the ear flies off, blood spurts everywhere. Peter, uh, Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he reaches out his hand, and he touches the bloody place where the ear had been and suddenly the ear is restored. Peter did what we all tend to do when we're hurt and scared. He struck out in anger and confusion. He hit and hurt the high priest's servant. It always seems like a natural thing to do, doesn't it? To hit back, to get even, make someone pay to hurt them the way they hurt us. But even in this case, we see the folly of retaliation. Why attack the servant of the high priest? He was only doing what he was told to do. And as we've seen, Peter swung wildly in anger and desperation, wanting to hurt someone, wanting to protect his master, but cutting off an ear wouldn't stop them from arresting Jesus. In fact, if Jesus had not healed the man, it would have only further enraged the Jew Jewish authorities. 
So trying to make things better, Peter just makes them worse. Jesus did what the Son of God, the only thing the Son of God could do, and that was he healed the man who hurt him. What if Peter had succeeded that night? What if he had led the other disciples to a desperate fight-to-the-last-man kind of defense of Jesus? It wouldn't have worked, of course, because the Jewish leaders had the power of the empire of Rome behind them. But if somehow Peter had succeeded in protecting Jesus, he might never have gone to the cross, and God's plan of salvation might never have been accomplished. There would be no Holy Week, no Good Friday, no Easter. And that really just brings me to the final words of Jesus before he was arrested. He said, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering your father has give, the Father has given me? See, Jesus was always in charge, even in the garden, in the darkness, in the night, surrounded by the soldiers who came to take him away. He came to drink the cup of suffering, and drink it he must. And off Jesus goes into the night while the disciples flee, and Peter follows afar off. His, he was guarded as if he were a common criminal. Jesus is going to face his accusers. In less than 12 hours, he will be hanging on a cross. But as he goes, one man rubs the side of his head and remembers that Jesus touched him and healed him. And this is really, the, truly the forgotten miracle of Easter. And it happens to be the last miracle of bodily cure that Jesus ever did. It's a tiny slice of life, a midnight encounter, a small miracle on the way to a bigger miracle. But it's a picture of the true heart of Jesus. In this story, we see how Jesus treats his enemies. When they came for him, he doesn't resist. When, when they are hurt, he heals them. He receives their attacks, and then he's led away to die for the very people who are putting him to death. He will not use his divine power to escape their clutches. He only uses his power that night to heal those who have been hurt by his own followers. On Jesus was laid the sin of us all. And if we are, if we are not a fully devoted Christ follower tonight, we can't blame Jesus for that. The fault is all our own. He is as willing to forgive our sin and set us on the right path as he was to be taken prisoner and to bleed and to die. What a Christ. What a salvation he brings. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how fitting that your birth was announced by shepherds who praised God for all they had seen and heard while Mary watched silently and pondered all that was happening in her heart. But on the day of your crucifixion, there, were no there was no celebration by the angels or shepherds, and Mary stood at the foot of the cross with her heart broken, watching as they gambled away your robe and pierced your side. We wondered tonight about the people that you healed, the ones who saw you still the angry waves, the ones who followed closely to hear your gracious words of hope, the ones who spread their garments on the road in Jerusalem or sat at table with you in the upper room or stood by your side 
that night in the Garden of Gethsemane while your enemies brandished swords. Where are they? And indeed, where are they tonight? It makes us wonder if we would be among the oppressors or the cowardly friends. But either way, we're here to confess that we are unworthy to approach the one who holds the universe in his grasp. And yet we know that we are welcomed into your awesome presence. You are the one who gave your life for us. And so we give it back to you. May we always aspire to give as selflessly as Jesus, in whose name we pray.